would like to share on the conversation of effort and effortlessness or anything else that's happening in your practice now? Does it just have to be on that topic? You're right next to the computer. Can you just move forward a little bit, or maybe sit 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 back in the that way? Is that all right? Sometimes they're not helpful, you know. Sometimes they really, they have a kind of, they have a kind of kick in them, you know. If you don't believe me, then you're going to go to hell. <laughs> you know, your life is going to go to hell, and nothing's going to work if you don't believe this idea. They're new age ideas. They're not actually, you know, they're not actually the nature of reality, you know. So they they usually have some component in them of truth but not usually the whole story. So, you know, the more you learn to trust yourself and come into a kind of alive relationship with what's arising, then that's really the practice. 
But any of us who've been sick, you know, for long periods of time have a lot to share in terms of what that looks like, making effort and letting go, holding the intention for health without constructing a desire around it. Somebody turn the water on. You know, it's a really, it's, John, it's a brilliant question, but it also doesn't have an easy answer because ignorance often doesn't see itself. So you can't actually see the operations of ignorance. You can only usually see the results of ignorance. And the results of ignorance is usually fear and grasping and suffering and wanting and not wanting. So that when we, we see we see suffering, it's like you're seeing the footsteps of the yeti. You never get to see the yeti. And so you can trace the footsteps back closer and closer to where this stuff comes from. But it, you can't see ignorance. It's one of the things. You can't see it. It doesn't see itself. And, I mean, when we can look, you know, anytime we've had an idea that was really misguided, it never shows up as this is ignorant. It shows up as this is totally right. <laughs> you know, and so wisdom is the ability to check and see, you know, does it feel right? Does it have the right uh, resonance? Does it actually make sense for discernment? Does it stand the test of time you know those kind of questions then can help us give some perspective on it but we can't just look at something and say this is ignorant talking talking with ivan you know about sometimes what happens when people fall in love you know it's like they'll, they'll tear down walls they'll tear down houses they're just i mean nothing will stand in the way it doesn't matter if they're well-suited or well-matched. You know, it has nothing to do with anything about that. It's just this feeling is so strong that there's something about it that people are willing to know how's, how's bar. There's no willing not to stop at anything, you know. And, and we can see if there's not discernment or care taken with that kind of force that sometimes it's not all rosy.
What made you ask the question? Um, you, you said something about running away from things and stuff. So I often thought, you know, I'm a job, so I don't really have a desire in mind at times to look for a job. Um, so I thought, is there ignorance that might be ignorant in there? Or am I fearful of something? True. And I'm, I'm not, I don't think so, because what you just said there, sometimes I think, like, no, I'm very content with where I'm at. You know, physically, financially, that can always be better, but, and, and health-wise, and so I wonder if, if I'm being ignorant in some way towards myself, and that may be taking, I'm just wondering if I've built this little ignorant shell that I'm not seeing things clearly. I'm very content and very peaceful with myself, so I don't think that's so. But I just wanted to kind of get a better idea of if, if I am. Well, you see, contemplatives in this world have a really hard time because, you know, um, this world is based on goals and achievement and success and all these kinds of things. And, and those of us who are in other um, lifestyles are constantly having to deal with the world around us, which is saying, something about you is weird or, or not okay or in denial <laughs> because it's like you know to be a contemplative to be content to be um, okay with how you are is like a complete radical departure from what's going on around us and so you know it, that's part of the reason why I was just reading I was just reading in this book let me see if I can find it this is a fabulous book, by the way. The End of Your World by Adi Ashanti. It's a fabulous, fabulous, fabulous book. Let's see if I can find it. <clears throat> our greatest contribution to humanity is our awakening. It is to literally leave the state of consciousness that the mass of humanity is in and discover the truth of our own being, which is the truth of all beings. When we do this, we come back as a gift, a newborn. We are, in a certain sense, reborn. What he's talking about here is that um, the value of committing to this kind of path and practice and how our world does not value that. And so, you know, one of the things I've been tearing my hair out with, which I've done a lot recently, <laughs> is the fact that I'm living in a society that has no value for what I'm doing. Okay, like no value. And so I'm constantly trying to find, well, how do I share or explain or give kind of, how do I allow this to shift in a way where people get some sense that maybe there's another way of looking at it, you know? And, you know, in a society that appreciates contemplatives and awakening, they are, they are given the highest value. 
And so the whole society appreciates that when a person is committed to doing that work on waking up, everybody benefits. You know? And in the world that we're living in, it's like something's wrong. You know? Get a job. <laughs> Just get a job. <laughs> you know, but when we actually understand what we're doing inside of ourselves, it's like, well, this is my job, you know? And and this is what I then have a lot to offer from. But I don't get a lot of mirrors around me that say, oh yes, that's wonderful. You know, so we have to find that internal kind of sense of validation and appreciation. And oftentimes we, you know, we're in circumstances where we're having to navigate, you know, other people's views and opinions as well as our own doubts. Is this really right? Is this really what I should be doing? Or do I should be doing something different? And so, you know, I guess with ignorance in a context like that, we need to check our motives, and we also need to check on the experience of what's happening for the people that we're closest to. Because it's possible, and it happens all the time, that we can be blind to certain things that are going on for us, but it can be reflected in the people around us. And so it's not as if we wall ourselves off, but we need to be in relationship with our own internal world and the effect of our choices on the people around us. And see how it fits, see how it settles, you know. Mostly, I feel like it was the right decision. I obviously didn't come to some point here, but um, sometimes I have this fear, and I'm pretty sure um, that it is that social pressure that I need to have something. But a bigger part of me is saying, I don't, I don't want to go down that path of going into the office job again five. I don't feel like I'm being genuine to myself and this path and going um, back to something that was, resembles what I was experiencing. I just have that kind of internal. So, you know, one of the things that we have to do is find a way of making a livelihood. I mean, that's one of the things that we have to figure out how to do. And it's not a small question. How do we make a livelihood that also nourishes our heart and our practice and is something that allows us to give in the world in a way that utilizes our intelligence and our talents? And, And for many people, you know, this again is not something that they can just arrive at one thing and then that's finished. It's often these things are shifting and changing over a course of a 
of a lifetime. But it's wonderful that you're asking these questions. You know, what do you really want to do? You know, how do you really want to live in this world? What's really important to you? How do you want to spend your day? And, you know, my brother's a businessman, and he's he's a good businessman, and, you know, his, his employers love him. You know, he's excellent. But he was saying that he thought, you know, that what was really needed in changing the world was changing the workplace, because, you know, a third of people spend their time in an office or in a work environment, and if that's a totally unconscious environment, then that's the kind of thing that people are immersed in and dealing with and surviving and perpetuating a third of their life. You know, that's not an insignificant amount of time, you know. So, you know, asking these questions is wonderful. You know, what do you want to do that actually brings a sense of genuine uh, congruence with what you feel is important, you know? And, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really important question. And it's natural to feel frightened because there's just, you know, the world is, there's a lot of pressure right now. There's a lot of fear right now. Situations are changing in ways that are not predictable. Um, you know, there's a lot more, there's a lot of fear. So it's understandable that it will arise, you know, as well as, you know, just the kind of reality of what happens when you don't have something that's taking so much amount of your time then there's all of the space to, you know, to spin. And for me, it was it was very, very insightful. You know, the monasteries that I lived in were incredibly busy places. We had an unbelievable amount of duties and tasks that we were navigating in terms of taking care of people and buildings and properties and meetings. And, you know, we had a lot going on. And I went from in a very busy place to a place where I was in the bush in Australia. And I was very deliberate about not wanting to be in a position of having a lot of responsibility because I wanted to see what would happen in a wide open space. And wow, it, it was a lot more challenging than I thought it would be. And so I got some sense that part of the reason why our monasteries were so busy was not only because of the needs that were around us, but because of the needs internally, not to have so much space of not having things to do, that there was a kind of internal hunger to be engaged with projects, sort of land and ground, the kind of whatever was going on in our mind-body systems until it felt peaceful enough to open it up into a wider space. So, you know, being with large amounts of unscheduled um, time is a practice. And, you know, Ajahn Pasano is a really very remarkable monk. I have a lot of respect for him, and he is very strong as a monk, you know, very solid and very strong. And he said it took him 20 years of being a monk before he could make skillful use of long-term practice. Okay. So it's really helpful to keep things in perspective. You know, that if things go a little bit agitated and restless and ratty, that, you know, it takes training to be able to make good use of wide open space and not, you know. 
So, you know, feet on the ground, eating regularly, having contact with good people, doing stuff that makes sense, and asking the question, you know, what do you want to do? You know, this here, this is um, not this birthday, but the birthday before, I had a birthing ceremony. I didn't have a birthday party, I had a birthing ceremony, and I invited some really, really close friends and went through this whole process of making a ceremony because it was like I was in a process of unraveling. You know, some of the identification that I had of being a nun and the form of being a nun no longer worked. And so it was like, well, what do I do? So this, I took this, and I took this on retreat, and every thread I pulled out, I said, now what? So for like three weeks I was on a retreat, and every thread I pulled out was like, now what? Now what? Now what? Now what? That was the koan. It was like, now what? You know? What do I do now? Now what? And I just held that question alive and watched and see what would happen, you know. And yeah, I'm not finished completely with that process, but I'm feeling much more comfortable with it. It was agony for me. It was like this torture, you know. And then it sh- then there were things that shifted. I felt more comfortable with with, with what was emerging for me. Because I am a Theravada Buddhist nun, and I'm not. <laughs> you know, I'm absolutely not, you know. And I can hold both spaces. And so it's like, all right, so what does that feel like? And what does that look like? And how does that manifest in the world? That is an effort in itself. For me, letting go is letting go of even holding the question. You know, really just just letting go. When I go to the rocks, that's what I do. As I just drop, I completely drop. I drop my body. I drop my mind. I drop wanting anything. I just drop, and I enter into something that just is so rested and so peaceful. And from that, something deeply harmonious and connected emerges. Where it's like you know whatever was kind of agitating is somehow held in a space where it just doesn't, it's not a problem. It's a little bit like the same thing that happens when you go for a run, you know? Your whole biochemistry changes. Nothing externally has shifted, but everything looks totally different, you know? Well, this is like an internal run, except I'm not running, I'm going nowhere. (laughs) Quite deliberately. So this is your first time here. How is it for you to come? Sounds good. Yeah. I mean, I do a lot of meditation and outward and inward thinking in my daily life and all like that. Mm. Just 
things to bring up or share? Going back to the first professor that you were speaking about, and you started talking about effort, I can't remember exactly how you put it. Um, it had to do with his passion and how felt like there was no doubt he couldn't, he had no choice, this was how, how he had to, um, this is how he was, this is how he lived his life, and I kind of have felt that way since I found the practice, and since I've been getting deeper into it, I feel like I don't really have a choice about sliding back and going back to how it was. There's really no doubt in my mind that it's going to keep going, but that also reflects again back on the child thing, which is actually why I quit my job. It wasn't aligning. describing him and what his effort looked like was something I could have done about it. <laughs> yes, you know, I remember there was a time in my practice where I would just kind of long to be able to sit in front of a television and watch football, stuff my face with popcorn and drink beer. It's like, you know, can I go back to just being ignorant and unconscious and not caring about anything? <laughs> it seemed like it'd be so much less painful. <laughs> but it was never possible to go back, you know. It was never possible. I don't have the attention span for football. <laughs> I just stare at their pants. <laughs> Somebody gave me some popcorn. I haven't had popcorn in ages, and I have popcorn now. <laughs> I was going to make a pile for everybody. I thought, this is a lot of pile of popcorn. <laughs> But also we need to take a little bit of care because we can have this feeling like we're not going to go back. But also it's unbelievable compelling how the world can be. And so, you know, you get involved in this, that, and the next thing, and, and all of a sudden your life is not your choice in terms of what you do. Obviously you have a choice in how you relate to what's going on, but you know, with certain kinds of commitments and things like that, it's just like huge amounts of time is already taken. So. 
in a classical, you know, way of looking at it, the way of really making sure you can't go back is to have the first stage of awakening. When the first stage of awakening is realized, then there are certain things that absolutely are not possible anymore. And until then, there's always the possibility that there can be a whole variety of conditions that come and we can, we can, we can get um, hijacked by, you know, circumstances. You know, and there's all kinds of funny stories, like, you know, a 90-year-old monk disrobing in order to marry a 16-year-old girl, or you'd think, come on! <laughs> it happens. Honestly, it happens. <laughs> you know. It happens. So, I mean, you just think, oh my God, you know, give me a break. But no, this is human. This is human. You know, the human longing for warmth and connection sometimes you know, it comes out of, you know, and it's not as if warmth and connection is a wrong thing, but you see what I'm saying, you can think that, you know, you spent a whole bunch of time as a monk, and that somehow these things would be attended to or handled, and it's like, it ain't over till it's over, it's like that stuff ain't handled until it's handled, you know, so what's really important is, is that when you feel committed to the practice, to really, um, to find a way to make that a priority. And what this book is so beautiful about is Adi Ashanti, he speaks very openly about his awakening experiences, which is very rare. You know, in the tradition that I come from, it's taboo to talk about it. So you don't ever hear, you know, meditation masters talking about their awakening. It's just so rare. I just don't. He speaks every chapter, you know, he talks about when I awakened when I was 25, you know, the first sentence in every chapter. So funny. But he just talks about, okay, so that after a certain level of awakening, he comes back into the life and there's like, there's no conflict. You know, it's like he's totally immersed in the world, but there's just no, there's no conflict with it. You know, he's just doing whatever. He's married. He does stuff that he needs to do. He talks with people. He, he, you know, he does all of that, and there's just no conflict. He's lovely, Adyashanti. He's really lovely. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.